0: Psalm 51, as we will see, was written to instruct us about what David learned of God's forgiveness. The psalm begins with a superscription, which you've heard for the music director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet confronted him after David's affair with Bathsheba. His affair with Bathsheba is found in second Samuel chapter eleven and twelve. You may want to listen as and review the story for us, which many of you are familiar with in the spring when kings march out toward David sent Joab. Joab is his commander-in-chief of the army, with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. The Ammonites are a tribe near Israel who are kind of historic enemies of the Israelites. So imagine the American army marching out to attack Canada, something nearby. As you hear the story, start counting all the sins of David. It begins with, he doesn't fulfill his duty as king. The army goes out, he stays home in his palace. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled on the roof of his palace. Of course, you can guess where his palace was. The best location in the city. Which would be where? Not in the swampy area where all the mosquitoes were. But on top of the hill. With a good view. From the roof he saw something. A very beautiful woman. The Hebrew is very emphatic. Many of our English translations will use a hyphen to try to bring out. A very beautiful woman in Hebrew is set up in a funny place in the sentence where you don't expect it. They use a hyphen, so you have to read it. He saw a a woman bathing. A very beautiful woman. It's got to be emphasized. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he reported, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite the Hittites are pagans they're a warrior nation in what modern day Turkey Asia Minor they're famous warriors in the ancient Near East and were brutal warriors so he's got this man Uriah the Pagan is how I would probably paraphrase it so you get the point Uriah the non-Israelite he's not a member of God's chosen people He's a Hittite. He worships pagan gods. So David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he slept with her. Now he had just been, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. She returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. So people sometimes say, What's this woman bathing on the roof where anybody could see her? Not many people walked around Jerusalem in those days on stilts. The Old Testament law required the roof to have a parapet, a short wall around the edge of it, so that no one would be able to see her, except David, who's got this palace in the prime location. If you're a realtor, you know, they always say the key to realty is location, location, location. So he's got the best location. That's why he can see her. She sends word to him next month and says, I'm pregnant. David sent orders to Joab. That's his commander-in-chief. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing, how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, Go to your house, wash your feet. Sir Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. He wants to get him and his wife in good mood. The cover-up is started. The secretary erases the missing tape, so to speak, to parallel when our nation went through such a trial. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with his master's servants. He goes to the gate which would have been stone, and he lays down there to go to sleep instead of going home and spending the night with his beautiful wife. Even though a gift was sent with him, you can guess what the gift was. Something to get him cranked up, I would assume. When it was reported to David, the Uriah didn't go home. David question Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why don't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark and Judah are living in tents. And my master Joab, the commander-in-chief, and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said. Who's righteous? This man, Uriah, the pagan, recognizes what is the right thing to do. David knows the right thing to do and he isn't doing it. He isn't with the troops. He's been with Uriah's wife. So Uriah the pagan has become more righteous than David the king of Israel. Another sin to put on the list. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him. And David got him drunk and went out he went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master servants but he did not go home the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah to parallel the Nixon tragedy in America it's the missing section of the tape for years I've wondered why Joab has such influence over David when you study the life of David, it's clearly this is a general who should be sacked. And he doesn't get sacked. I think the reason is Joab's got the note. And every time David wants to move against him, he holds it up. He goes, hey, you want to end your career? It's right here, buddy. The letter, here's the letter he wrote. Put your eye at the front of the fiercest fighting and withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew where the were the best of the enemy soldiers. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and one of the men from David's soldiers, some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. And Uriah the Hittite also died. So a lot of men have been killed now, and other women become widows, and other children become orphans, I would assume. Job sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king the details of the battle, if the king... Messenger gets stirred up, and he asks you, "Why'd you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall?" And, and then he gives an illustration at Abes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jersebeth Beth. A woman, didn't a woman drop a millstone on him from the top of the wall? So that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then your servant Uri, the Hittite, is dead also. The messenger left. He reported to David all that Job had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David... The men gained advantage over us, came out against us in the field. We counterattacked right up to the gate of the city. However, one of the others shot down on your soldiers from the top of the wall, and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant, the Uriah the Hittites, also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you just because the sword devours because the sword devours all alike intensify your fight against the city and demolish it and encourage him then your when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died she mourned for him in the time of mourning David brought her to his house he brings her to the palace he's going to show see what a good guy am i when one of my soldiers dies in battle i take care of your family i take care of them really well they come to the king's palace the best house in the city with the best food anywhere i'll make sure your family's taken care of you. you don't have to worry you fight in my army you're covered he's trying to build himself up chuck up another sin here And he became, she became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So the Lord sent Nathan. Nathan is the prophet to David. When he arrived, he said to him, Nathan's going to come at it obliquely by telling a story. There were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing but a small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank his cup. and slept in his arms and was like a daughter to him now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come hospitality is a requirement in the Middle East so a traveler comes you must show him great hospitality and prepare a wonderful meal remember when the angels came to Abram he immediately slaughters an animal and has his wife sorry start preparing a meal for his guests. So this man takes the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. So David reflects and renders a judgment because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You're the man. And the Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the the." hand of Saul. When David became king, Saul mounted a campaign to capture him. Something like we did against a man in the Middle East who attacked our nation through his operatives. Saul wants David to be dead. Puts a price on his head. God said, I delivered you from him I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives to your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. David became king over Israel, which split into two sections, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. David was king over the United Kingdom. So he had what even Saul didn't have when Saul was king. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Therefore, the Lord will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. He will take your wives. You may know the story of Absalom where David's own son started a rebellion to become king. He didn't want to wait for succession to take place. and He took David's wives. David had to bear the shame of seeing his own son rebel against him. This is the judgment the Lord pronounces on him. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's Wife had born to David, and the child became ill. David pleaded with God, he fasted, he went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him, urged him to get up from the ground, but he was unwilling would not eat anything, so the baby gets sick. And for seven days and seven nights, the baby is dying. And David has his face in the dirt. He's praying for the baby to live. My hunch is is this is when Psalm 51 was really composed. While he was laying on the ground thinking about his sins. Murder is a capital offense. Adultery is a capital offense. He's guilt. He should be hung several times over. And he knows it. Eventually, of course, the baby does die. And David struggles with what has happened. Psalm 51, I believe, was written in this time why should God forgive David David has committed serious sin what do I mean by serious sin I mean the kind of sin that makes us think we could never be forgiven for what we've done we're unworthy of being forgiven. The kind of sin that makes us feel we're just dirt. That we deserve to be punished by God for what we've done. And it's punished severely. Everyone here knows people that have sinned seriously like that. Some of you are in that category and struggle with finding God's forgiveness. Psalm 51 was written to teach you where God's forgiveness is found and how to find his forgiveness. David begins by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love. Because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts my transgressions in many of your translations what, David, what could David have said I'm the anointed king it wouldn't do for the king to be executed it would cause the nation to fragment and then your glory has been dirtied so God you, you need to forgive me you need to heal me from what's happened and restore me he could have mounted an argument look, I look at all the worship songs I wrote the biggest book in your Bible is probably the book of Psalms depending on the, the font size that they used when they printed it David wrote most of the Psalms we still sing them we still read them he could have said look at all I've done to teach people to worship And for centuries, even thousands of years, people will use the songs I wrote for worship. God, look at what's happened. You need to forgive me. I've done so much good for you, you need to forgive me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned. Have mercy on me because of your loyal love. That's a good translation of the word some translations just say love some newer ones say covenant love it's a special word in the old testament chesed is well translated as loyal love or covenant love it's a commitment when a couple gets married I ask them why do you want to get married? they come to us for premarital counseling my wife and I say "Why why do you want to get married? and they usually hold each other's hands and look at each other with these google eyes and go because we love each other and the answer is kind of like that commercial for staples you press the big red button and go wrong answer when i as a pastor officiated marriage ceremony i won't say because you have google eyes for each other let's get married it isn't because you have heart flutters what will make you married is a series of vows that the couple makes For better, for worse, in sickness or health, till death do us part. The vows are always a contrast of extreme situations. Forsaking all others. I will love you till death do us part. I will be committed to you. My wife has modeled for me chesed love. Because the man she married 41 years ago Much of him disappeared when I had that massive stroke. It it took away so much of my abilities to move my arms, to think, to act. And so I'm constantly praying, God, heal me. I want to give a testimony this morning. We often say Jesus is our healer in the Alliance, our Savior, our Sanctifier, and our coming King. He is our healer. I'm beginning to appreciate what my 2-year-old grandson's going through trying to learn to walk as he stands up and falls on his butt all the time. But trying to learn to walk again has been very difficult. Probably as hard for me as it is for him. So I have to use a cane and have a a trainer to help me. And somehow I'm learning God's enabling me to walk slowly again. The other thing he's done is when I had the stroke something happened called centralized pain which means you feel massive pain in one area for me it was my left hip the pain was so bad I would have had the doctors cut the leg off if that would have stopped it they put me on strong medication which was horrible the side effects and many a night when I finally got to get back home I would lay in bed my legs spasming with pain unbearable and prayed, Jesus, you healed many in your earthly ministry. Now touch that left hip and heal it for tonight so that the pain will subside and I can sleep and stop the spasms so they won't wake me up throughout the night. And he did that night after night for months. And it's continued every night. Last night the spasms came back. And I prayed again that prayer. And again he calmed it down so that I could sleep. Maybe rested enough for this morning. So he is our healer. Do you know what healing is? Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. The resurrection is when our bodies are, and everything's put back together the way God wanted it to be. Garden of Eden-like bodies. Healing is just a foretaste of what will happen in resurrection. So when we sing of the glory of being in heaven and say, I wait for that, I do long for that, when everything will be as it ought to be. have a mercy on me oh God why not because of all the good stuff I've done for you but because of what is mercy he asks first of all for mercy he doesn't ask for what we would probably ask for mercy is favor shown on one who doesn't deserve it and can never repay it according to your, your covenant love your commitment committed love to me Your love which will never soften, never change, never disappear. You're you're loyal in your love. So we praise that simple prayer. According to your great compassion, wipe out my rebellious acts, my transgressions. In the older translations it says what a transgression is a rebellious act it is rebellion against the constituted authority what is he saying as the king when he says wipe away my transgressions imagine Richard Nixon saying my fellow Americans I have violated my oath of office I have violated the constitution I have broken my pledge to you when I took the oath to be president no one would believe that Even the most loyal Republican could never conceive of Nixon saying something like that. Well, David, the anointed king, saying, I'm a transgressor, is even more powerful of a word. I'm a rebel against God. In God's chosen nation, I'm a rebel. He says, wipe away my transgressions, my rebellious acts. The image is of washing a piece of dirty clothing, making it clean. Uh, How did you learn to write? Probably with one of those pencils as thick as your thumb that you kinda held clumsily and clumsily made letters and wore out many an eraser erasing the paper trying to make the letter look nice so the teacher would be happy. In that society many people learned to write with a sandbox. Did any of you use a sandbox to learn your letters? Anyone? They are still used in some places in the world just take a picture frame and pour very fine sand into it and it's kind of like an etch-a-sketch you can make the letter with your finger and you can just shake it or wipe it with your hand and it's a smooth surface again so he's asking god all my sins have been listed out just wipe them out take your hand and wipe that sandbox clean or like the etch-a-sketch turn it upside down and shake it and all everything you wrote goes away wipe out or blot out my transgressions, wash away my wrongdoing." So a very clear image there of a dirty clothes being washed. He says, I'm like something dirty. I need to be washed. I need to be clean again. For I'm aware of my rebellious acts, he says, I am forever conscious of my sin. My sin always confronts me, he's saying. He can't go through life and not remember that every time he sees anyone mourning, he thinks of that little baby that died because of his sin. Anytime he thinks about the future and a son that would take over the monarchy from him, All they can think of is that son who died because of his sin. Every time he sees a beautiful woman, he thinks of his sin against Bathsheba and against his wife and how he modeled for the youth of Israel treachery and disloyalty within marriage. His rebellious acts are always confronting him all day long. Everywhere he looks, there's something to remind him of his sin against you and you only, against you above all in the net translation, against you and you only in most other translations I have sinned. Now think about that sentence. What's he saying against you and you only have I sinned? Does he have the moral sensitivity of a slug? Hey, this woman has been raped. This baby is dead. This man was killed. Other soldiers were killed. Other women became widows. Other children became orphans. The good name of Israel has been spoken evil of throughout the Middle East people will say oh Israel they worship Yahweh what a God is that look at the kind of king he has so he's really sinned against God he's recognized why was raping your uh, Bathsheba wrong you have to think about it long and hard to realize why it was wrong was because he was violating God's plan or purpose for her life. He was violating the marriage of Uriah the pagan and Bathsheba, the daughter of an Israelite. He thought about a sin till he realized what makes sin sin is we're not doing what God wants us to do, what God intended to be done in His creation, in His reign over the earth. That's what makes sin, sin. Against you, you all, above all, I have, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. He's piling up words here to describe what he did. He called himself called what he did a transgression. He calls it evil. He calls it sin. He doesn't pull back and try to use fancy language to work his way around reality. And why did he sin so seriously? He's made it very clear. He sinned seriously. His sin is serious stuff. Why did he sin so seriously? And he's, he's thought about it. And he says, Look, I was guilty of sin from birth. A sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. That's the doctrine of original sin. It's one of the reasons why abortion is wrong because blobs of cells and protoplasm are not sinful only people are sinful only people with a mortal soul can be sinful he says sin was part of me from the moment I was conceived he realizes that in the nature of who he is is sin that's why he did it because it's the stuff I'm, I've been made of so there's deep reflective thought about sin then he says to God you desire integrity in the inner man he knows God wants us to walk in holiness and he recognizes what's inside him is not holy in the uh, comic strip Peanuts there's one character that's kind of interesting his name is Pigpen if you read the comic strip Peanuts you know Pigpen wherever he walks there's always this cloud of dirt that follows him pig pen is sinful from the moment of conception there's dirt or filth that just surrounds him that's who he is, that's why his name is pig pen because he's always dirty <laughs> David would have said that should be my new nickname that's what he's recognizing about himself when he says this Now, if I may make a little aside which will come to more focus next week one of the reasons many people never find forgiveness is they don't deal with their sin as David did here. They don't look seriously at how, at how serious their sin was and why they sinned so seriously. For many years, my wife and I taught at sem- major seminaries. One of the things I began to realize in working with entering students is many of them came to seminary out of a desire to be worthy of forgiveness. There was serious sin in their background. I remember one stunningly beautiful young woman who came to one seminary I taught at. And a student came to me who had started dating her. He said, I really like her. But he had discovered that she was a party girl at the university, had sinned seriously, was very promiscuous. And he said, what do I do with this? And... He didn't know how to handle that in her background because he was starting to like her a lot and he was hoping that he would move from like to something more. It quickly became evident that one of the reasons she had come to seminary was to be worthy of God forgiving her and restoring her. Every pastor knows that one of the best ways to find someone to run a ministry that's hard to staff is to find someone who feels guilty because they'll work like crazy in the church trying to be worthy of being forgiven, which David has removed. He's not said, I'm worthy of being forgiven. He says, I'm a sinner, and what I did was rebellion against you. There's no attempt to hide it. Then his petition, his prayer, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Grant me the ultimate joy of being forgiven. He wants to be forgiven and he will unfold in here what forgiveness means. That the bones you have crushed rejoice. He's saying what this, the recognition of how evil he's been and the, that he deserves the judgment of guilty has crushed him he doesn't have any structure inside to hold himself up anymore (laughs) that the bones you have crushed rejoice like his bones have been crushed hide your face from my sins don't look at them anymore he says those of us that are parents know when your children do something wrong. They want you to cover your face and not look at them. The most painful thing for them is when the parent knows that the child has done wrong and, that, and looks at them. I remember as a young boy when I did something wrong and my father would look at me, I would be crushed. That I had displeased him. One time he told me to do the dishes. It was in the early morning he had to leave to go to work. He said, Mike, get the dishes done before I come home for lunch. And I just sat around and played games with my brother and our neighborhood friends. and didn't do the dishes. He came home for lunch. They were still sitting in the sink. And I displeased him. And I knew that. And that crushed me. When you love someone and they're disappointed in you, you feel crushed. So he said that the bones you have crushed rejoice. So he's praying for restoration. Wipe away my guilt. This is asking God to wipe away his guilt. He knows the verdict has to be guilty. He doesn't try to hide from it in the psalm. He asks for God to show mercy to him at the beginning, mercy being favor shown on one who doesn't deserve it and can never repay it because of God's great compassion and loyal love. Then verse 12, Then I will teach other rebels your merciful ways. His stated purpose is to teach those who have sinned seriously God's ways of great mercy and compassionate forgiveness so if we're in that cat, you're in that category of one who has sinned seriously has serious sin or if you have a close friend Psalm 51 is for them that they might learn of God's ways towards a serious sin Lord give me words and my mouth will praise you One who's been forgiven should give their testimony to other people. Testimony is the statement of what God's done. Lord, you do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt offering. Burnt offering is the offering for sin. He knows if you look at what page is Psalm 51 on in your Bible, probably page 1,000 something, depending if you have a study Bible or not. It's way in there. In the 800 to 1,000 pages before Psalm 51, is there any offering for adultery, any offering for murder? You can go through all those pages and you'll find there's nothing. And David knows that there's no offering for his sin he said if there was I would offer it he realizes he's in deep trouble there's no way out the sacrifice God desires are a humble heart a humble and repentant heart you will not reject because you favor Zion do what is good for her A humble and repentant heart. heart that's not proud saying. David humbles himself in this psalm. If you think about who David was, he was a guy that had testosterone pumping out his ears. There was a time when he was confronted with a bear and a lion. What did he do, if you know the story? He killed each one of them. Another time he was confronted by a monster soldier Goliath, and he kills them in battle. Most of us, if we saw a lion or a bear in front of us, the hormone that would pump through us would be adrenaline and we'd be running fast. Move feet, move. I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun everybody else around here. David has so much testosterone, he attacks these critters, this... Giant Goliath. So he sees Bathsheba and his hormones take over. He doesn't say, God, you made me with this very high hormonal level. There wasn't anything I could do. I see a beautiful woman, and you know what happens to me physiologically. He didn't give an excuse, he didn't justify his actions. He says, I'm a rebel. What you desire, God, is a humble and repentant heart. And He shows us what repentance is when He reflects on how serious His sin was and how seriously He sinned and why He sinned so seriously. Then you will have proper sacrifices, whole burnt offerings will be offered on your altar. He says, so when I'm forgiven, I'll make sure worship is again the center of Jerusalem. I know I've tarnished Jerusalem as a a place of worship. But I'll restore that. I'll work for that. So for the serious sinner, the person who feels that I've sinned so bad, how could could God ever forgive me? I'm not worthy of being forgiven. Psalm 51 was written to tell us what to do, to deal with our sin, which is the essence of repentance. Repentance is a real change of mind and attitude. David's had a change of mind and attitude towards what he's done, who he is and what he's done. And he writes about it in Psalm 51. Next week we will finish looking at David's request for full forgiveness and what God offers us when he forgives us. As we finish the rest of Psalm 51. And if you are a serious sinner, I encourage you to read the Psalm this week until it becomes your prayer. Read it over and over and let the words soak deeply into your heart. Let it speak to you. That David's stated purpose to teach others who have sinned seriously about God's ways may become a reality in your life. Will you bow with me as we pray? Our Father, we thank you that you can forgive any serious sin. That you can transform serious sinners into people after your heart. We thank you that even when there seems no way out to us, you can provide a way of escape a way of forgiveness and restoration. I pray that those who have sinned seriously here or we may be married to a serious sinner or have one in their home or extended family will find the truth of Psalm 51 in their own experience and family and relationships and that those who need to find full forgiveness will find it as David did. We pray this, Father, for your honor and your glory because you've given us this passage in your word to teach us these truths. So, O great God, have mercy on us, according to your great compassion. Blot out our sins, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.